Welcome to Spotlight, a PEI Group podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I'm Helen DeBeer, Editor of Private Equity International, and today I'm joined by my colleagues from PEI's global editorial team. I'm Madeline Farman, Senior Reporter with Private Equity International. This is Katrina Lau, Reporter at Private Equity International. Hi, uh, I'm Alex Lin, Hong Kong Bureau Chief for PEI. And today we're going to be discussing the PEI 300, our annual ranking of the top fundraisers in private equity. Each year, PEI Group's researchers and reporters collaborate to produce this ranking of the industry's 300 largest fundraisers by how much capital they've raised over the last five years. You can find the full list and all of our reporting on the 2023 ranking on our website at privateequityinternational.com. Today, we're taking this opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into the results of this year's list. Who came out on top? Which firms have struggled with their fundraising? Has the difficult macro environment already had an impact on firms' five-year totals? Or should we expect to see that in future iterations of the list? We're going to be looking into all of this and more in this episode of Spotlight. So Blackstone is the leading firm on this year's PEI 300, coming out on top for the sixth time in a decade after missing out last year to KKR. Madeline, let's come to you first. You spoke with Blackstone about their win and also discussed their overall fundraising objectives. Can you share with us some details of the conversation that you had? Yeah, sure. So uh, Blackstone reached over $125 billion this year, quite a leap on the $82 billion uh, that they recorded for the PEI 300 last year. So I spoke with Joe Barata, Global Head of Private Equity at Blackstone, about them topping the list. And he told me some fundraising highlights uh, for them over the last five years. So the firm launched its growth equity platform, for example, which closed its debut fund on its hard cap of $4.5 billion in 2021. Its life sciences platform reached $4.6 billion, uh, its hard cap as well, for its inaugural fund in 2020. Barata also highlighted the firm's core platform, which allows Blackstone to hold companies for 15 to 20 years. The firm's second core fund, which is more than 70% larger than its predecessor, closed on $8 billion in 2020. Not to mention the firm's out with its latest private equity flagship, Blackstone Capital Partners 9, with the firm looking to raise an amount substantially similar to its predecessor, which closed on $26 billion in 2019. What I'll also mention, this year's list marks the first time that three firms, Blackstone, KKR, and EQT, have exceeded that $100 billion mark. Uh, Only last year, KKR was the first firm to break the same barrier. So when you were speaking to Blackstone, did they have any thoughts on what is driving investor interest specifically in their PE products, specifically in such a heated market? What do they think is drawing in investors to them. Yeah, absolutely. So Joe essentially told me that the firm sticks to its knitting. Its flagship, for example, is a control strategy seeking out large companies. And that's what the firm goes out and does, uh, he told me. He also mentioned that the firm acts with a healthy measure of risk management. This means it's not investing its capital over a compressed period of time or over-concentrating in one narrow sector vertical. And I'm sure that while you were having your conversation with Joe, the fact that the fundraising environment at the moment is not particularly healthy probably came up. Did they have any comments on that? Do they have any concerns about raising in the current environment or do they have any other views on what uh, fundraising is going to look like over the, the coming 12 months? 
Yeah, so I think the fact that uh, Blackstone's chief operating officer, John Gray, indicated on the firm's first quarter earnings call that its next private equity flagship will be in line with its predecessor, Fund 8, closed on $26 billion, and was it was around 45% larger than its predecessor. That paints a picture, right? Uh, but Joe did tell me that since 2007, the global market cap is up four plus times, but the largest private equity managers are still investing out of circa $20 billion funds. So actually, the firm's not overcapitalized, he told me. It's, if anything, undercapitalized for its strategy. And I did want to bring out a really interesting quote from him that we have included in our PEI 300 story. Uh, he told me, I'm amused when I read there's an enormous amount of dry powder and too much money chasing too few deals. We're not experiencing that. Great. Thanks, Madeline. So on that note about fundraising concerns, Alex, I believe you had some similar conversations with market participants in the Asia Pacific region. Something that jumped out at us in this year's ranking is the fact that more than two thirds of firms in Hong Kong and mainland China saw their rankings drop this year. That's a pretty stark figure. Uh, What do we think could be behind this drop for the region? Yeah, so it's no secret that appetites for Chinese private equity have greatly diminished over the past few years. There's a few reasons behind that. One is obviously the pandemic disruption, which was a lot more severe and long lasting in China than other markets. But also there's geopolitical tension, a lot more scrutiny on Chinese participation in American investments and increasingly vice versa as well. So LPs are not only rethinking their risk appetites as it pertains to China, but also I think thinking about the regulatory and political implications of of having Chinese assets on their books. The fundraising environment uh, has been described, particularly as it relates to China, as one of the toughest sources have seen in 20 years. And I think what we can pretty safely predict is that that's not going away this year or potentially next year. So it would actually be more interesting, I think, to see how this changes and develops next year where we'll see a big chunk of firms falling out the ranking altogether. And it will be also interesting to see whether any of them reclaim that ground uh, as there's expected to be quite a few winners and losers. So in this uh, new environment that you just talked about, are firms finding any interesting ways to adapt and to ensure that they are still able to fundraise even amid this concern over having capital invested in China? Yeah, so market sources tell me that Chinese firms are attempting a a variety of measures, I guess, to try and help with their fundraising and and their perception among international GPs. So some are essentially trying to pivot and rebrand themselves as more international. So that might be doing cross-border transactions, that might be investing overseas in companies that have a strong China story, i.e. a big Chinese customer base, for example, but the assets themselves aren't Chinese. Some markets that have been touted as potential alternatives for these firms to focus on are Japan, Korea, also India, we've heard as well. Another way that uh, Chinese players are attempting to continue to raise capital in this environment is by launching renminbi-denominated fund strategies. A popular way of doing that, particularly for international players who obviously need approval to do this, is through the Qualified Foreign Limited Partnership Scheme. So essentially what that does is it enables international firms to convert a prescribed amount of 
international capital into renminbi and what that does is it allows them to access this vast universe of renminbi denominated assets so some companies might not accept us dollar investments they might only take renminbi so it essentially unlocks a very big very domestic part of the market that previously they wouldn't have been able to access and obviously for those foreign investors who are very very bullish on the china story still and obviously some of those do exist not everyone has been scared off that offers them a way to really i guess double down on that china story Okay. And Katrina, let's come over to you. So obviously we've been talking about fundraising being particularly challenging this year and firms struggling to adapt to these new circumstances, but it's not all doom and gloom, obviously. And I know that you, for your research into the PEI 300 this year, you looked at several success stories. So could you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So actually in this year's ranking, we saw 39 new entrants and 31 of them are from the U.S., And one of the highest ranked newcomer is also from the U.S., which is Atlas Holdings from Connecticut. They're at number 152 this year, and they closed two funds in the relevant five-year period, one at $1.68 billion and another one at $3.1 billion. There are also some recurrent names on the list that have shot up the list. One is Parthenon Capital Partners that jumped 168 places to rank 114th. And the other one is Sentinel Capital Partners that went up by 153 places to rank 118th. And both of the firms are actually based in the US as well. One firm I would like to highlight is a software specialist GP called HG. So for our readers, you might've noticed this name from our cover story last month or you can find it on privateequityinternational.com. So HG, which is based in London, they ranked number eight this year, which is their first time in the top 10. And they shot up from ranking 17th last year. And in 2021, they were ranked 31st. So they have been consistently growing and climbing up the list. And for HG, they specialize in buyouts of software and tech services businesses, which makes it even more impressive for them to rise up to top 10 with uncertainties around the tech market. But the firm actually secured $11 billion last August for their latest large cap strategy, Saturn III. And that is $2.56 billion above its initial target. So it's even more impressive that they're closing above, way above target in this environment. Right. And on the other hand, what did we see in terms of some firms maybe slipping down the list, maybe not being able to hold up previously strong positions that they've had in previous years in the PEI 300? Yeah, we do see some firms that are having less luck in fundraising this year. So one of the firms is called Maine Capital Partners, which is based in Hague. They were close to falling off the list, actually. Um, so last year, Maine was ranked 240th. But this year, they fell to 299th on the list, so just above 300. And that's because its fifth flagship, Maine Capital 5, closed in 2017, which fell out of our rankings five-year fundraising period. And there's another firm called Onyx, which is based in Canada. They've been affected by the tough fundraising environment, and their fundraising amount fell by 67%, which caused them to fall out of the top 100. On their Q1 earnings call a few weeks back, Chief Executive 
Bobby LeBlanc announced that the fundraising of their sixth flagship fund would be paused because it's tough. And the sixth flagship fund had a target of $8 billion when it was launched in September last year and has only raised $2 billion by November. And actually within that $2 billion, $1.5 billion was Onyx's own commitment. So sticking with the theme about firms on the PEI reporting concerns about raising and closing funds or struggling to meet their targets, Madeline, if we go back to you for a second, we've had a few examples of this recently. Do you think fundraising confidence is beginning to fracture more broadly across private equity? Yeah, so it segues perfectly, doesn't it, from what Katrina's just been speaking about. I mean, for example, in our PEI 300 write-up, we discussed the fact that Carlisle, for example, its Carlisle Asia Partners Growth 2 fund closed below its target of $1 billion or $950 million. BC Partners closed its flagship, BC European Capital Partners, 11 last year on 6.9 billion euros against a target of 8.5 billion euros according to PEI data. And then a slightly interesting case study, and I did include this in our write-ups, KKR, which took out the second spot on this year's list, gathered $8 billion for European Fund 6, raising roughly 20% more than its 2018 vintage predecessor. However, research by Private Equity International had the vehicle seeking somewhere between 8 billion euros and 10 billion euros when it began raising in 2021. A spokesperson for KKR declined to provide further details when contacted by PEI at the time of the close. So we've been having some very interesting conversations with LPs, placement agents, and market participants more broadly. The uniting words from those we have spoken with and I included this in an editor's letter we put out uh, recently, Uh, the uniting words are, it depends. Responses have varied from a fund not hitting target as being forgivable to closing below a target as being perceived as a failure, essentially. Katrina, I don't know if you agree with that. You helped me out with some of these pieces. Yeah, absolutely. So some interesting points that came out of the piece that we wrote titled GPs and Market Brace for Impact. Some investors have been eyeing up lower mid-market and mid-market opportunities where deal making requires less debt. Valuations have been less of a concern and people have been telling me that acquisitions can be done creatively in that part of the market. For others, this comes at a cost, right? One placement agent, Sunaina Sina-Haldea, global head of private capital advisory at Raymond James told me there are investors who are saying that in this market, larger deals are harder to get done until the debt markets reopen. Other placement agents also as well telling me that you can see the pocket of the market that will get squeezed if there's interest there. It will be the larger cap parts of the market uh, where obviously we have heard on earnings calls that we might see funds closing slightly below their targets. Another area where people could feel the pinch is those generalists that are out there. So specialists that are really benefactors of LP's interest at the moment are those operating healthcare strategies and more traditional private equity plays like industrial manufacturing. Um, However, you know, it's not the case of being a specialist means that you win every single commitment from an LP 
There are places that are being squeezed. Technology-focused funds on the whole aren't seeing as much investor interest. Uh, Consumer-focused strategies are a difficult sell at the moment. And growth, in some instances, it is an uphill battle for those managers. It's likely then that future iterations of the PEI 300 may well begin to reflect these challenges once the dust has had time to settle. We'll be keeping an eye out for major changes in the coming years. That's all for this episode of Spotlight. For Private Equity International, I'm Helen DeBeer. Thanks for listening.